0: You are listening to The Boss Business of Surgery series podcast, episode 17. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Matt Endara, a plastic surgeon who has experienced multiple different ways to practice surgery. We're going to talk about the pitfalls of these different surgery models. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we need to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right, welcome back. I have with me, Dr. Matt Indara, he is a plastic surgeon, highly skilled, lots of different variations of practice. uh, And I wanted to bring him on to talk about some of the red flags to look for when you're trying to find a job. There's lots of different options for jobs. And I thought that I would bring him on since he's got so much experience with these different aspects of it. So Dr. Indara, why don't you give us a brief introduction of who you are? Oh, sure.
1: well, thank you for having me on, uh, Dr. Patrice. I really appreciate it. Uh, and also just to say that uh, Dr. Patrice and I actually work together uh, in the same hospital system and is and I mirror everything she says about being highly skilled in terms of her skill level. So, you know, doing this podcast uh, is, is wonderful, uh, but it really is a reflection, just your very high surgical skill and, you know, patients love you and all that stuff. So thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess my background, um, I was born and raised in Chicago. Uh, I did my medical school at Northwestern and then uh, directly matched into an integrated plastic surgery program at Georgetown uh, in Washington, D.C. And so Georgetown is a program uh, that I think was a bit unique in that it is actually the only plastic surgery program in Washington, D.C., which means that we actually we rotated at pretty much every hospital in that area and we're the only plastics residents in there. And we actually ended up working probably with 40 or 50 different plastic surgery attendings in all sorts of different practice models. And so one of the things that I noticed even in talking to some of my peers is that I was exposed very early to a lot of different practice, practice models. One of the attendings I have was one of the pioneers of getting an rbu based payment structure um, and the first person at his hospital to have that. Um, and so I, and he loved to talk about it. So very quickly, we were exposed to different ways of practice. Um, and so plastics in particular has all sorts of different ways you can practice because you go from you know doing hardcore reconstruction or even just working in a wound center where it's all some you're working for someone, um, or you could go all the way to private practice, cosmetic only, where you don't work with insurance at all and you're doing it all basically as an entrepreneur. And so there really is everything in between and you can have hybrid models, you can kind of do things with what you want, how you want to practice to some degree. And so when I finished residency, I joined a single surgeon private practice. Um, and during that time frame, kind of noticed a lot of different things that I wasn't super thrilled about. Uh, but one of them was just, you know, in terms of Medicaid, Medicare, trying to take care of different patient populations. I don't really like to say no to people who need help based on their insurance carrier. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not trying to be too uh, moral about it all, but it's like, I, I would just like to be able to do what I think somebody needs to be done and not worry too much about that. But I also understand the reason for worrying about that. And so I was able to negotiate a, uh, a hybrid structure with a hospital that I had been operating at where they brought me on as a partial full-time employee and pay me based on RVUs. And it allowed me to take care of their population, which was primarily Medicaid. And so I then got to get a contract that we were both happy with. Um, and just take care of those, those patients. And I was nearing the end of my contract with the private practice that I was at. And and interestingly, when I got that part of that contract, I had them pay me a base salary, which I then allowed my private practice person to deduct from his base salary for me. So I was trying to make it, you know, work for everybody. And so, and it, it was working fairly well. Um, and I was starting to get to the point where I would start bonusing, but my contract was up with my private practice. And I didn't want to stay in Chicago any longer. I mean, frankly, it was just very much so I was you know, cranking out lots of cases, getting busier and busier, and I didn't want to stay with that practice for a few different reasons. You know, decided we really, really wanted to move anyways and found, a, found our, our position here in Tennessee. You know, even that, uh, the way I got that position was I cold called the physician recruiter. There was no job being offered. I just looked at who the physician recruiter was online and gave them a call. And I found the hospital by looking at where Nashville was and drawing a circle 40 miles away from it and looking at all the hospitals within that sphere, because I didn't want to be in Nashville uh, to compete with 52 plastic surgeons. Um, I found a place where there was one other plastic surgeon. And after that call, it actually snowballed into me just joining uh, the practice with that other surgeon. So I was just the two of us in the most rapidly growing county in Tennessee. So it all worked out really well. So here I am. My practice is very uh, widespread. I do everything from wound care to cosmetic surgery. I do microsurgery, free flaps, kind of stuff that we, you know, you primarily see in universities, but was used to doing it in private practice already. And uh, and it's been great. It's been wonderful here.
0: It's so funny, like we had such a similar path. So, you know, I was at Walter Reed in DC at, at the same time that you were at Georgetown, although we never actually met there, but I did the and same thing. So funny. I cold <laughs> called the hospital when I was getting out of the military. I was like, hey, do you need a general surgeon? Because I wanted that kind of practice. And I too... Did not want to be in a big city. You know, there's a competition there too. So then, you know, they have like the right and the left colon surgeons and things like that too. And, but I wanted to be able to do my broad based practice too. So um, I think that you brought up really two great points, which is one is understanding the payer mix in your area. If it doesn't matter to you, it's great, but it's going to factor into the money that you're going to make. And everyone is going to offer you a guaranteed salary based on MGMA data. And the most important question to ask is what is my expected salary after this? Because that kept me from having Uh a really terrible job first coming out Mm -hmm. because I just was lucky enough to ask that question. So paramix is really important to understand what your market is. And the second is, is that, you know, choosing an area that's not necessarily in the big cities that may not be the big flashy job. You actually may have the most potential to have the practice that you want because you can carve out what you want and um, less competition too. So you're actually more likely to be successful, but you have to think a little bit out of the box and you have to be a little bit willing to take a chance. And those can pay off big.
1: Couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I I have no problem with, folks who want to go be a city doctor, if that's really what you want to do, if you want to live in a city and you want to work in the city hospital, that's fine. But understanding the compromises you're going to make to do that is I think, you know, very beneficial to your life satisfaction afterwards. And so if it's worth it to you to compromise, probably a good portion of your practice in terms of what you want to do and what kind of patients you want to see, especially in the first few years, because those first few years where you're trying to make a name for yourself and get busy and, and have the practice you want. I mean, it can take three to five years just to start to get to a point where you're happy with how your practice looks, especially in a city, because you're, you have such competition. I mean, it took me three years here where I had no competition to build enough of a reputation and stuff like that, where now my surgical schedule is, you know, busy every single day and all that stuff, which is what I think we're all going for, um, is to be, you know, practicing at the way you want. And I'm, I'm now there, but it took several years in a place where I had no competition um, you know, in, in, in a place where you do, it's even harder. Um, and so, it, but if, if that is important enough to you to live in the city, then by all means do it. But just understand what you're getting into and don't be too, I guess, don't be too upset about these challenges and see them as, you know, growing opportunities to say, okay, here's this challenge. I'm expecting to have all of these challenges. I think it's very easy for us to kind of get a little bit bitter about what our challenges are. Like, well, I'm a physician. I shouldn't be treated as basic. Like, yeah, no, these are business challenges. And that is what we're not trained on, um, but it's something that is so important to see as what they are, which is hurdles to overcome to get better. Um, and and as long as you're looking at it that way, you can go to a city; that's fine. Um, but I didn't want that. I, I I really wanted to basically practice the way I want to practice, not not uh, what you know what needs to be done in that area. Because you're right; it becomes very super subspecialized, and I had no interest in that.
0: No. So let's say that. Um we're looking at a practice, what are some of the, and I have my own ideas as well, of course, but what are some of the things that you want to think about as you're joining a practice that you want to start asking about?
1: You see a lot of uh, advertisements for come join this practice and here's your base salary, like you kind of talked about, or, you know, it, it's really understanding what kind of a practice it is because there are different, so many different models now for practicing medicine, especially surgery. Um, you know, there are, you can start a practice, which coming straight out of residency, that's very very hard, uh, but you could start it. It's just you would need a fair amount of either you're already independently wealthy and you could just pay for it all, or you are um, going to have to get loans from the bank to get it open up a building. And to, you know that that would that's not easy, but it's certainly doable. So you could start a practice. You could join a multi specialty group, and then even within a multi specialty group, there's different levels of hands on and hands off. Some of them act basically like a glorified billing HR company where they are able to negotiate better. Um, better rates for insurance cases, and also things like HR and benefits and stuff go through them, but they don't really run your practice. They let you kind of run the practice and they don't really also pay you, you pay yourself. It's almost like you're just using them as this tertiary way of managing things. There are multi-specialty groups that are very hands-on. They're looking for specific types of surgeons and then they bring you on and they kind of tell you a little bit what to do. I mean, there was one courting me in Chicago that, you know, if they bring you on and they're like, we want you to do microsurgery, we want you to do take care of pressure ulcers, we want you to do this stuff. So it's really not your practice. You're joining something and they're going to tell you what to do. There's joining a hospital group uh, that's usually paying you based on RVUs as opposed to insurance reimbursement models. And so you, you can join that either uh, there's there's university type of positions. Some of those pay you a flat salary and there's not even a bonus option. So you can work as hard as you want and there's there's no bonus. There's obviously the military, which is its own beast, completely different. Um, and then there's, um, there's joining a small private practice of sorts, which is becoming less and less common. Um, but in plastic surgery, you certainly see that still uh, because the cosmetic piece allows people to, you know, basically reimburse enough that they can bring on a junior partner, but then they're usually the ones personally guaranteeing your salary for whatever period of time that is. Um, and that could be anywhere from one to four physicians, you know, maybe even more, but usually that's what I see. And uh, in truth, it's very rare to see those things work out. Well, there's all those different models and understanding really how you are being paid, I think is helpful um, because if you're being paid by, a hospital and it's on RBUs, Um They're probably, in all honesty, uh, going to be able to show you exactly how that goes. You know why they pay you that based on MGMA data or what have you. Um, if you just join a small private practice, they're going to think they're say, "Well, this seems fair." Um, you know, it's, it, unless they have actually done some form of an analysis, uh, which is less common. I mean, I I have heard of and you know, personally been involved with them saying, well, here. here, we'll pay you based on your uh, productivity after this formula. It's okay, great. We're going to do it based on our, your share of overhead and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, well, so once you join, it's like, well, so what about that bonus? Like, well, we don't really know what our overhead is. It's like, you've never calculated your overhead. I mean, you know, understanding that when they're smaller, they may not be putting in the effort to get the data necessary to really understand what you're bringing to the table. Um, And so that's, that those payment models You just got to be really careful about what they promise you and whether or not they're even capable of delivering it.
0: And, and I've seen a lot of people that have have looked at joining um, a private practice, or actually did join a private practice, and didn't really understand, um, you know, some of the business aspects of it, the numbers to ask for, and things like that. And then exactly what you described is that they get to a point where, okay, well now I'm ready to get you know paid more because my guarantee's up, and and they realize that they thought they joined a practice where they understood the numbers, and they just really don't. And you know, there's a whole lot of feelings that come up with thinking like I'm being taken or I'm being taken advantage of, or they're ripping me off. And sometimes they just don't have any idea. I think the more you can know yourself, what what you're looking for in a practice, the more you can ask the questions that are helpful. Like, what is your overhead? What is your expected percentage? What is your um, anticipated um, salaries based on the amount that you work on? Because even in private practice, you know, I could tell you how much I get paid per RVU because RVU is just a relative work value. You know, there's in these, these coding books, you can determine exactly your work RVU, this is standardized. Um, It's just a different reimbursement in the the parts of the country that you're at, because some parts of the country are going to get paid more for the same thing. Like we'll get paid less in Tennessee than you do in, in California, but at the same time, our cost of living is a little bit less. And so you can figure out like, What is the workload that I do? And what is the expected payment that I have? And then you could try to get it to a standardized thing where you could compare, but you had to be careful about these smaller practices just may not know what their overhead is. And that's a dangerous situation. I think there's also another uh, red flag to look for is if you're joining an older person who's ready to retire, there's this idea of buying into the practice. You know, what are some of the challenges, both financial and a little bit of, you know, more than just financial, what are the challenges do you think with those kinds of practices? In terms of just
1: joining a practice in general, um, one of the things we talked about off air was kind of like what are what are some concerning signs for uh, different practices, and when you're looking at a small practice, I think really having an understanding of how they are running it as a business is a good idea. And I think that you know the days of doctor uh, practices being kind of mom and pop shops um, are gone. I mean, we we have lost that luxury uh, because now it's big business. It really is. And so if you have a a mom and pop shop running it like a mom and pop shop with a husband and wife combination of some sort, you know, uh, it's, it's likely that they're not running it. And then it's wrong sometimes. And, And, you know, full disclosure, my parents ran a practice for a while because my dad's a family practice doctor and my mom is an MBA and she helped him run his practice for a while, but they got to the point where she was like, I'm out. She stopped doing it. Um, because it's, it's very hard when family is involved in my opinion, for it to run like a business, there was too much. It's too, too personal. There's too many personal things going on there. And even with non family, it can start to get personal, which I don't think is a good thing either, because it should be running like a business. Um, and so when, when you have a practice that has a bunch of family members involved, I mean, to me, that's a red flag. And I've made it clear to like my wife, she's not getting involved in the practice and she doesn't want to be in neither do I. I mean, it's, it's better, in my opinion, unless I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there's not instances where this can be okay but i think it is very hard to make it run the way it should it's not like you know you see uh, at the top of this, it's not like the hospital ceo is going to bring in his wife to be the hospital co-ceo you know like they're running it like a business unless she independently went there on her own accord or vice versa you know it, it's just it doesn't it, i think it, it very much so is a red flag to me um and so i don't like those combinations um, i think the other thing is just looking really hard to make sure that they have you know, some way of capturing data and actually processing and and, and analyzing and that they care about it. I mean, I know of a a group around here where there was a surgeon who was very successful, you know, older doc and had done all these great things, you know, when when the getting was good in the 80s and 90s, right? They brought in a younger partner who was like, okay, great, so how much does it cost to run your OR? They had their OR, I have no no idea, no idea what things were costing to run on a daily basis. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, now I'm working here and I got promised all these things. And you, you don't even know how much it costs to run your OR. I mean, that is, I think just making sure that they really know how to run their books and also, you know, not telling you, well, you know, our, our practice brings in $2 million a year. And that's okay, oh, great. You know, what's your what's your overhead? What's your payroll? Do you ever have to lend money from the bank in order to pay those people? Like, you know, these are all questions that in an interview as a junior resident or as a resident just coming out, you may not think to ask. But if you're going to be looking at a private practice model, those are all very much worth it. If you're looking at a uh, hospital model, it's really understanding that after your salary guarantee is up, what is the expectation in terms of how many RVUs you should be generating? Can you get a sense for how many physicians have already had your job and left? I mean, that's another, you know, red flag. If it's like, well, we've had four people try this and it didn't work. It's like, that it doesn't sound very good. it's it's it, There's a lot of questions that you don't know that you need to know uh, sometimes until you're there or some, someone's already told you, like, look out for these things.
0: Yeah, I think that those are excellent points. It's it's one thing to have your family working for you, which has its own problems. There's a reason nepotism is always approached with caution. But if you're joining a family, you know, you are not family. So <laughs> then you're already oh. um, at a bit of a disadvantage. Um, I think your other point too, um, about the uh, asking how many people have come and gone, you know, if there's a lot of turnover there too, obviously that's a red flag and you should be able to ask the person who left. Um, and I would encourage you to, I think a lot of people that are looking for a job are a little bit insecure about saying, I wanna look at the books or I wanna talk to people who have left. It's important to get outside of yourself and stop worrying about you, your security by getting a job and being okay asking those questions. And the reason why is that it's, you know, overcome that now. So you don't trap yourself in a situation that you then have to get yourself out of, because if they're not going to show you the books, if they're not going to let you talk to people who have turned over, if you're not going to get the answers that you want, assume they're bad and stop.
1: (laughs) I think that's, I think that's a great rule. And I think, you
0: know,
1: one of the things you said in terms of thinking outside the box is also something that. I think is a great idea when you're looking to get a position and trying your best to ask people who are not involved with that practice, what's going on with that practice is a great idea. And, you know, one of the people, one of the kind of sources that I would use when I was looking to come down here and trying to figure out where I could potentially find an opportunity um, because I was more so looking for, okay, where is there a need? Because when you go where there's a need, you're going to be busy. If you go where there's really not a need, then you're going to be fighting, And you can make your, you can get yourself there, but it's going to be an uphill struggle. I think people like uh, people who work in the hospital, if you can somehow get a hold of them, you know, nurses, especially in the operating room, um, those are great. Uh, I actually, you know, people have their opinions one way or the other about pharma. And, you know, I think that I have, I have very big opinions about the pharmaceutical companies, but I think that the actual reps that work for pharmaceutical companies are oftentimes, you know, nice people. And if you are nice back, Um, That's really sometimes all that you need to be able to talk to them, because to be honest with you, the one person who's going to multiple hospitals, seeing multiple different things, talking to the nurses and able to kind of get their foot indoors more than anybody else is usually a rep. And so if you want to get a line on what's going on in an area, not a hospital, and you can kind of get into contact with the local rep, and they're usually the ones more than willing to talk to you. So, you know, you can get in and, and if you can kind of develop some form of relationship, be like, hey, where where is there really an area or what hospital around here doesn't have this thing? They're probably going to be more honest with you than anybody else. And so I actually ended up talking to a bunch of reps uh, for different you know companies that I'd been kind to as a resident and kind to as an attending. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, uh, do whatever they want, but you can just be nice to them when they bring stuff or, or, or not even bring stuff. They just I don't even make them do that. I just say, well, you know, come on over, tell me about your product, be a nice person. That's fine. They will often have reciprocate that and then give you information about what's going on in the community.
0: I think it's great advice. Um, now I know in your particular practice now too, you have an interesting mix, um, as well to where you are a um, hospital based employee, but also have your own aesthetics practice. What were the challenges of having both of those, um, at the same time? What are some of the challenges you had in, in creating that practice? Uh, more than anything, it was
1: getting legal to figure it out, to be honest with you, um, because what you don't want to do is step on a Stark landmine. You know, so Stark laws are obviously so readily uh, referenced all the time and so minimally understood because the law itself is very vaguely written. Uh, I know because I've read it several times. Um, and so the, um, the, the problem is when you're trying to do a model that's a little bit uh, unique making sure that it it, it passes legal muster, basically. And so we um, getting that to work out was a bit of a challenge, Um, but we, we were able to figure it out. And it's funny because when I first came here to interview, they, we talked about it and I said, well, I'd really rather that be a separate piece. And the main reason for that is that in the aesthetic market, you can't have some kind of a bureaucratic system that is involved with the big hospital employment model in order to be able to make a, 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 a sale offer or to be able to, you have to be nimble, you have to be able to work fast. So that really does lend itself well to being a small business. So it's hard to make those things the same. And so having them separate allows one, both of them to be successful in my opinion. When I first came, they said, well, what would a contract like that look like? And so I basically handed them a contract that I thought would be a good idea. And then for a year, they came with all these other ideas and then at the end, they said, "We'll just go with your idea. It's the most, <laughs> it's the most legally sound." Um, and that's that's you know, it. It was great because it worked out the way I wanted. Having an understanding of why you would want to have a separate model like that, and then how you think it should run, would be very helpful. Um, the challenge is just getting everyone on board and to make sure that everyone realizes, you know, why you're doing it, and um, and to be, I think, radically transparent about what you're doing with it. You know, I don't want also my hospital employment model to think that I'm doing anything that I didn't promise them that I would do. So I show them my books. I say, here's exactly what I'm getting. Here's our percentage that's being spent on cosmetics. And then if we have to adjust our, you know, payment structure from there, that's fine. But, you know, it's, it's being, I think being honest, not being underhanded and being transparent is the best way to do this. Not trying to pull, you know, not trying to look like you're pulling something over on them because ideally you're not, you should not be doing that.
0: Yeah, and I think those are two uh, great points I think you made too, which is first is understanding the practice that you want in the first place so you can establish that contract before you get into the area because it's difficult to start an employed job and then decide to do aesthetics. Mm -hmm. If you go in there with the intention of saying, completely transparent saying, this is what I plan on doing, but then you also work with a hospital system. And I think there's a lot of times that people don't understand what the hospitals are up against too. You know, they too have their own uh, competition. They too have to follow Stark laws. Um, you know, I'm running up against this my, myself is that I'm seeking the hospital to support me getting um, recruitment for a partner to come into the area. And hospitals are allowed to do that if it doesn't look like they're over recruiting. Um, so they have their own laws. It's not that they don't wanna help. Um, it's just that they're yeah. somewhat bound. But of course, you know, I've also run up against the fact that the Stark laws are very vague too and subject to interpretation. So you could say whatever you want sometimes and use that as the overarching thing. Understanding what you're up against, uh, knowing some of these laws, and some of the things that the hospital may be looking at. But you know, we don't expect no one expects anyone to know all these things upfront. But the more you're able to work with them, the more you can learn over time, and the more they understand that you are there to work for them. And then you also are open to the fact that they probably are there to work for with you too. Um, you know, our success helps their success, and vice versa. And I think those are the most important things to consider in um, the more open and transparent that we are, that it'll actually help us learn more as we go along. I agree
1: more. I I think you bring up a great point, which is that, you know, the hospital needs stuff from us as much as we need stuff from them. And, you know, it's certainly, I'll be honest, the, the bigger the system, the harder that gets to kind of discern and to talk about. Um, but when you have, you know, one of the big draws for me coming down here was that it's a small system. You can actually talk to the CEO and, you know, have a conversation with them and know that they're not, and I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but like almost like a puppet CEO. So when you have a huge health system, like, uh, and, and, and each you know, 200 hospitals strong, right? Each of those CEOs is CEO of that hospital, but this to somebody else, who probably then answers to somebody else, and then finally you get to the top. So even the person that you think is the decision maker may not actually be the decision maker. And so you know, it, it that's one of those areas where you got to be a little bit careful with how you you know figure out what they need and whether or not they're going to care about what you're providing. But when you have a smaller system, you can go in and kind of figure out, okay, so what do you as a system need? Here's what I want, and if I help provide you with what you need you know, can you help me with what I want? And that's, you know, so like I help manage the wound center here and I take care of a lot of non-surgical stuff because a I I think it's the right thing to do, but b also the hospital needs it. And I want, I want it to be successful. And this is something that would help their mission and the people around here. And it's far from glamorous and it's something plastic surgeons usually run away from, but it's, it's, it gives me something that I can help them with so that when they're kind of, you know, being, helpful to me. It, it. There's a reason for it. If you go to the hospital and you say, I am this surgeon and I'm the best ever, and you should just bow to me for everything. And I know I'm not going to take care of that stuff and blah, blah, I'm not going to take any medication. Like, do you think they're going to really care about you when a new CEO comes around? If you're not providing this, if, if you are being a bit of a prima donna, I mean, eventually, no, eventually they're going to get rid of you because that version of the world is going away. Um, and so I think making sure that you are helpful to the system is going to be only to your advantage, you know, if you care about that. In co- and to be honest, in plastic surgery, there's an element of us that can say, well, you know what, I'm just going to go straight cosmetics and have my own surgery center and I'm never going to work with the hospital again. And it's like, OK, fine, uh, that's the way you want to go. But if you want to keep doing the, if you want to work with them and, and do some of those cases, then it's, it, I think it's better to maintain a good relationship. Um, and that's by providing what they need like you said.
0: And uh, and I think that your strategy actually helped you a tremendous amount in the pandemic when all the uh, elective stuff shut down. It's like your work with the wound center and all the things that you're doing um, with all the different services with the limb salvage program and things like that too. You know, maintaining a diverse practice is going to help you in these, you know, really strange times we're in. (laughs) Oh,
1: no doubt. And, And
0: not only that, you know, having a diverse practice
1: Uh, and and in plastics, especially because we have that option, but general surgery as well, you know, you you protect yourself against a new technology that could come in and make whatever thing you were doing obsolete. And so, you know, you have certainly seen that in certain, especially surgical worlds, you know, where a new catheter comes along and then turns out you don't need to do open heart surgery anymore or something like that. Like there are these things that can change your world that you have no control over. And it could be a pandemic. It could be a new piece of technology or it could be a 2008 financial collapse, you know, where all the cosmetic markets rise up and now all of a sudden class terms are getting on the hands, hand call scheduled again. And so, you know, I think being diverse is something that I very early on was like, well, this is a good idea, you know, I, and I like doing all that stuff. So it's good for me, but I think diversity in your practice, it, it, they stay the same for investing, right? Have a diverse portfolio, you know, have a diverse practice model and you'll be able to shift with the tides a little bit.
0: Yeah, absolutely true. Especially, um, you know your your point is really helpful to consider. Our practice now was not what I, you know, was a resident for. You know, like there's now robotics. There's all these other things, and so you know, there's what we train for, but we're not done. There's always the you know continuing to evolve and read the market and um, and really make sure to keep up with the trends. Uh, That's helpful because otherwise you will find yourself obsolete. I mean, it's just the beginning of the conversation about different kinds of practices. And so in the show notes, we'll kind of summarize some of these different practice models to look out for. Uh, But there's certainly, you know, much more to be said for red flags of these things. It wouldn't surprise me if we do more of this because goodness knows we've only scratched the surface of things to look for.
1: We certainly talk a lot at the uh, computer stations about all these <laughs> things. So there's there's a lot more to say.
0: Yes, I know. We, you know, so Dr. Indara and I can talk for hours because, you know, we do have the luxury of having a small system. And so we've been able to learn a lot more because of that. Um, and then also having colleagues, we learn so much from our colleagues too. And so Dr. Indara, thank you so much for coming on. And you, you are always just a wealth of information and you have certainly made me a much better surgeon and business person. So I appreciate all your help.
1: Did all very much so. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate it. Appreciate
0: it. All right. Talk to you soon. Find more information at bosssurgery.com, as well as the Boss Business of Surgery Series Facebook group to find more information about Boss and the free webinar on March 21st at 6 p.m. Central. It's complicated. It's time for us to start talking about surgery complications and how we're going to manage them so we can sustain our surgery career.